If you would, uh, please join me as we look at God's Word from Acts chapter 24. Uh, You can find that in the Pew Bible in front of you as well if you need that. Acts chapter 24, we'll be reading uh, the entire chapter this morning, all 27 verses. Uh, So keep that in mind. If if that's um, too much for you to stand for as we read it, you're welcome to remain seated, of course, during that time. Uh, But if you're able, would you stand with me as we read from Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 27. Please give your attention to this. This is God's word. And after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this all with gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge affirming uh, that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you to make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying... When Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, 
and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Please be seated and let's pray and ask the Lord's help this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. Would you help us to attend to it with eagerness of heart, with faith and with love, uh, to receive it as your word uh, with all the authority that that brings with it? Lord, we pray that you might grant us understanding of these things, things that happened uh, a long time ago in a very different place than where we are today. And yet your word remains true and relevant and applicable to all of life throughout the ages. And these things indeed were recorded for us, for our edification and instruction to help us to believe your promises and to walk in your ways. So Lord, would you do that today? Help us to receive your word, to lay it up in our hearts and to practice it in our lives. And we pray that in all things, uh, through this part of your word, Would you help us to see Jesus? For we pray in his name. Amen. Christians throughout the ages have always been called to give a reason, give an account for the hope that they have, the hope that they maintain, even and perhaps especially in times of fierce opposition or danger. Uh, Throughout history, we read accounts of Christians being called to give account for their hope. Sometimes uh, people are called to give an account for their hope in simply the normal routines of life, workplace relationships, family conversations, even family conflict, opportunities for public testimony to Jesus. Other times, this call to give a reason for hope takes place in the context of fierce opposition, even state-sponsored persecution open hostility and animosity toward Jesus and toward those who claim his name for themselves. In the early years of the church, believers were regularly challenged to forsake their Savior, to renounce the faith that they had professed in Christ, and give ultimate allegiance to the state, the Roman Empire, usually under the threat of brutal death. You know, throwing Christians to the lions to be torn apart for their testimony to Jesus, burning them at the stake. And yet there are stories from that period of time that overflow with faithfulness and unstoppable joy in Christ, even in the midst of persecution and death. Justin Martyr uh, is one example. You can, you can read many of these stories in uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. This is an updated version from a group called the Voices of the Martyrs, um, which leads us into the 20th century and some more recent accounts of persecution. Justin Martyr was a 2nd century Christian, uh, a noble and able defender of the faith who suffered persecution for his faith in Jesus and, and maintained his testimony Uh, that Jesus indeed was the Christ, and they would not forsake that confession of faith. He was known to have written these words. He said, The lover of truth ought to choose in every way, even at the cost of his own life, to speak and do what is right, though death should take him away. 
And at the beginning of his book, which is called The First Apology, or his first defense, he said this, you can kill us, but cannot do us any real harm. Or even Polycarp of Smyrna, years before uh, Justin Martyr, famously as he was being taken before Roman authorities and called to renounce his faith in Jesus, stood before governor, much like Paul did in this story that we've read, and the, the governor, or the proconsul as he was called, spoke to Polycarp, swear allegiance to Caesar and I will let you go. Bring reproach upon Christ. Polycarp turned to the governor and boldly declared, 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? Those are just two examples from the early church, two examples from the, the whole history of the church where we see God's people standing in the face of, at that point, state-sponsored persecution, but standing in the face of trouble, standing in the face of affliction and pressure to forsake Christ and maintaining faithfulness, which raises the question for us, what is it that sustained them in that? What was it that fueled their faithfulness in the face of fierce opposition? How were they able, uh, to quote our memory verse that the children reminded us of this morning, how were they able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil? The answer that we find in this passage from Acts and from other places is that they were able to stand firm because they had hope. They had an unshakable hope in Jesus, Jesus who had died and had risen from the dead as victor over sin and death and the devil. They knew by faith that their ultimate enemy had been conquered and that they had been forgiven of their sins. The one thing that could truly rob them of life and that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, they knew that the God of the universe was their father who had forgiven them of all their sins, had removed all their shame, all their condemnation, had declared them righteous through the work of Jesus received by faith and had then called them his beloved children, giving them an eternal hope. They had hope. This hope was not in earthly rulers. It was not in systems of government. Their hope was not in the hope of a just society being transformed here and now. Their hope was that Jesus, by his sinless death, by his life, death, and resurrection, had put sin and death to death and had brought them into an everlasting kingdom that transcends all other kingdoms. I don't know if it's this season of life for me or if it's primarily the effect of working through the book of Acts, probably a little bit of both, but it's, it's become, uh, I, I suppose I've become more and more convinced of the compelling hope that Christians have in Jesus Christ. I'm more and more convinced of the importance of having hope, of knowing the hope that we have in Christ and its importance for following Jesus faithfully. And it's becoming more and more clear how urgent it is for us to communicate that hope to a world that is desperate for real good news, good news that doesn't fade and can't be thwarted. This morning, I'd like for us to see that hope once again now on display in Paul's defense before the Roman governor, Felix, to find courage from it, to find encouragement from it. Here we see in this passage that in the face of great adversity, 
and false accusations, Paul cheerfully offers a defense of hope in Jesus Christ. And in doing so, he offers to us not only an example to follow, but also a reminder that the hope that we have in Christ is unchanging, never failing, and surpasses any obstacle that we may face in this life. Just for context, this is the first real trial Paul has faced. He's kind of had two pre-trial hearings, if you will, one before a riotous mob outside of the temple in Jerusalem and another before the Sanhedrin, the council of leaders in Jerusalem, which kind of turned riotous as Paul gave his defense. But, but here we have Paul for the first time facing somebody with authority to do something to him, namely Felix, one of the governors appointed by Rome over this region where Paul is. And there's a bit of redundancy here that I think it's worth pointing out. Uh, Paul has defended himself now twice. This is the third time, and there's two more to come. He'll defend himself before uh, another ruler, or before two other rulers, rather, from this point on. And so there, there are at least two more sermons that we'll have where you may feel like, hey, haven't we heard this before? This sounds familiar. Paul seems to be saying the same thing again. And when you feel that way, I just want you to know you'll be right. There's, you're going to have deja vu all over again. And that's part of the point, because part of what we see in Paul's self-defense is a consistent witness, a cheerful, full-hearted defense of hope, and the details of that hope don't change. He doesn't have to make it up when he reaches another place where he's got to defend himself. It's the same hope over and over again, and therefore it's a defense that's worth giving more than once. Let's look at this hope in Paul uh, this morning. Let's look first at the false accusations against Paul. The Jews bring in the big guns here. Paul has escaped a plot from Jewish conspirators who plotted to take his life. He's been carted off to Caesarea and is now appearing before the governor, Felix, who was over that area. And Ananias, the high priest, shows up along with a man called Tertullus, who is described to us as a spokesman. He's a lawyer. He's a trained advocate. He's a trained attorney in the Roman Empire who's now, uh, he's probably Jewish, so he's helping the Jews navigate their case against Paul. They're bringing in the big guns to bring these charges against Paul. But I want you to notice the exaggerated appeal that Tertullus makes as he brings these false accusations against Paul. We're meant to see here that they have no real ground to accuse Paul of doing anything wrong. And because of that, they have to make stuff up and they have to flatter the governor. And so you see that in the beginning of Tertullus's words to Felix. Uh, he opens with this very cordial greeting to Felix. He says, since through you we enjoy much peace and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere. We accept this with all gratitude. It's a bit of flattery, no? And this was not unusual for the time. It's, it's not unusual for an attorney to go before the one who would be the judge and, and kind of in the Roman Empire pay homage to him, flatter him a little bit. But Tertullus exaggerates Felix's greatness here. Uh, we know from historical accounts that Felix was a notoriously bad governor of this region. He was not a just ruler. One contemporary historian said that Felix practiced every kind of cruelty and lust 
wielding the power of a king with all the instincts of a slave. He had indeed been a slave. He and his brother rose to power through influential friends, and it would seem that he never overcame the inferiority complex of having been a slave. And so he exercised this power with intense cruelty. He is attributed uh, for stirring up massive amounts of trouble among the Jews during this period of time. Insurgencies arose. We, we heard about one of them in a, a few chapters ago, an Egyptian uh, insurgent who caused a riot and brought soldiers into Jerusalem. Felix responded to these insurgencies with a brutal display of power, squashing them ruthlessly. And the, it had the effect of kind of stirring up more trouble than he was able to put out. And so Tertullus fawning over Felix, while it's a common way of kind of securing the favor of this governor, he's overdoing it. He's saying things that aren't true. He's flattering Felix uh, with insincerity about Felix's own greatness. But he's doing it because he has no grounds for bringing any real charges against Paul. And so notice the way that he describes Paul's offense. He describes Paul's offenses in a way that makes it out that Paul is seeking to usurp the authority of the empire. He calls Paul in verse 5 a plague. This was kind of a common term used for somebody who sought to overthrow proper authority. You can kind of catch the imagery. If you don't stop a plague once it starts, it's going to spread all over. Paul is a plague. Uh, he's, a, he's a pestilence on the empire. You need to stop him. He's a troublemaker. Tertullus says that Paul has been stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a threat to the empire. If you let this man go, he's going to continue this reign of terror among the empire, stirring up trouble and riots. The implication is that Paul is somehow a threat to the stability of the empire. He's bringing about discord. He's stirring up rebellion. He is bringing insurrection against authority. Not only that, but Tertullus points out that Paul, he calls Paul a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He's not simply a follower in this group. He is their leader. He's kind of their general. And so if you can make an example out of him, the rest will follow their lead. Punish him as an example to the rest. When the powers that be cannot find true fault with Paul, and have no real grounds for accusing him and bringing him to trial, they have to make up accusations and exaggerate his threat to Roman society. These things still happen in our own day and age. Many of you will remember about five years ago, a pastor in a Chinese Presbyterian church, his name was Wang Yi, or he still, his, his name still is Wang Yi, the pastor of the early reign covenant church in China, uh, was arrested and is, continues to be imprisoned for his faith in Jesus. And yet all they could do was accuse him of things that were not true, falsely accusing him of stirring up rebellion against the communist regime, of operating a false business, trumped up charges in order to squash witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Making up accusations, they seek to remove Paul's ability to bear witness to what they view as a sect, uh, a variant of Jewish faith that was not, in their eyes, true. 
Yet in spite of this, Paul gives what he calls a cheerful defense of his hope. He defends himself on two fronts. He answers the false accusations before the Roman governor. He maintains his innocence. At the same time, he testifies to his hope as the fulfillment of what his Jewish accusers actually ought to believe. He despises neither, he neither despises the state nor dismisses his roots as a Jewish believer in Jesus as the Messiah. Notice how he defends against these false accusations. It's not much. He simply says, when they found me, there was no crowd around. I wasn't profaning the temple. In fact, I had been purified as part of this offering. There was no defilement of the temple going on. There was no tumult happening when they found me. No crowd had gathered around me except these Jews from Asia who gathered simply for the point of accusing Paul and stirring up a riot. Paul simply says in verse 13, they cannot prove to you what they now bring up against me. And those who brought the accusations in the first place didn't even show up to bring them before Felix. Paul is interested in maintaining his innocence before the state. And yet his focus is not primarily on the charges that are against him, though he answers them. Rather, his focus seems to be very singular in this, that he takes opportunity to testify to the hope of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Notice what he says, verse 14, following this defense of his own innocence. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God. Paul, though falsely accused, though treated unfairly before an unjust system by unfair accusers, Paul does what the Apostle Peter instructs us to do when we face opposition and even suffering for the sake of righteousness, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Peter, in his first letter, tells us, always be ready, honoring Christ as Lord in your heart, always be ready to give an account for the hope that is within you. That's what Paul does. And yet that's a challenge for many of us. Imagine if you were, uncused, uh, if you were accused unjustly, or perhaps grievously sinned against by others and brought up on false charges. We may feel that something close to our hearts is under threat, and usually in that case we respond in that kind of classic fight-or-flight mechanism that we often engage in. If you come at me, I'll come at you. I'll, I'll unload all of my ammunition on anybody who's unloading on me. Or we simply run, maybe not physically, but we, we don't speak clearly, we don't testify clearly, or we, we mix our words and we don't speak and testify to the hope that we have. And yet in Paul's example, the unjust charges that are being brought against him seem to not face him in the least, but he's able to give testimony to the hope that he has in Jesus Christ. What about us? Perhaps we may not have opportunity to stand before the state under persecution for our faith or defend ourselves uh, for, against false allegations directed at our faith in Jesus. And yet we still have opportunities to testify to our faith and our hope in Jesus. Just to give two examples, 
You have opportunity to testify to the hope that you have in Christ by practicing grace-centered forgiveness towards those who sin against you. Two brief examples about this. Uh, many of you will recall several years ago the, uh, the murders that happened at the Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston. Uh, many of you have been there and, and seen the church. A young man uh, full of hatred and animosity by his own admission uh, went to a, a Bible study at a church and sat through the Bible study and the prayer meeting with them. And at the end of the Bible study, stood up unloaded his gun and killed nine individuals in that Bible study. They had no contact with him before that. They had no idea who he was, uh, but a brutal murder of nine believers in Jesus Christ. Uh, later during the proceedings that accompanied this young man's arrest and subsequent trial, many of the families who had lost loved ones in that uh, brutal act of murder testified to their faith and hope in Jesus Christ offering forgiveness to this young man who had taken so much from them. A difficult thing to do indeed. Or many of you may recall the account of Rachel Den Hollander, uh, a former gymnast, University of Michigan, and now an attorney and advocate for, for many who have been uh, abused in various ways. She and many others had been physically and sexually abused by one of the physicians who was in charge of the University of Michigan gymnastics team and had worked with Olympic athletes as well. Rachel Den Hollander was one of the first to come forward to expose the evils that this man had done over many, many years. And in the court trial, and you can go watch it on uh, YouTube, it's worth seeing her testimony. She does two things that are astounding. In her own testimony against this man who was subsequently um, uh, found guilty for these great crimes. In her own testimony, she testified as a Christian, offering forgiveness to this man for these grievous sins that he had committed against her. She couldn't speak for anybody else, but she spoke for herself and testified that because she knew the forgiveness of a holy God given to her through Jesus Christ, crucified and risen for her, that she knew what she was called to do was to offer forgiveness to him. And at the same time, she said, I can offer you forgiveness, but you have to seek it from God. Both her own forgiveness and a warning to her that the ultimate one to whom this man would have to answer was God himself and that he was called to seek God's forgiveness. In this way, these two examples demonstrate a testimony to faith in Christ, to a hope that is not anchored in how other people treat me, false accusations being sinned against in grievous ways, but a, a hope that is anchored in the good news that God, the God of the universe, gave his own son in our place to bring us out of darkness and into light, to make those who were once enemies into not only his friends, but beloved members of his family, all through grace. And by exhibiting that same grace to people who had done heinous sins against them, they testified to the hope that they had in Jesus Christ. Practicing grace-centered forgiveness testifies to our hope. Or, perhaps on a lighter note, using, simply using our words when we have opportunity to point to Jesus as our ultimate hope. 
Some of you may have seen this past week um, video of the University of Oklahoma softball team, this kind of championship uh, girls softball team from the University of Oklahoma. Anybody see this in the news? Yeah, this is really cool. Go look it up. Uh, there was a press conference before one of the games on Tuesday, I believe, and they had three players and the coach there. And one of the uh, reporters in the crowd asked these three players, how do you deal with the anxiety and the pressure to perform? You know, you guys are kind of the expected champions, a lot of pressure at that level of collegiate sports. Uh, how do you deal with that pressure? All three players, it's amazing, go watch it. All three of these players said, we have found our ultimate joy and identity, not in softball, but in Jesus Christ. And knowing that we have hope in Jesus means that the game of softball is not as important as we used to think it was. Here these are, championship college softball players. This is a big deal. This is, you know, upper level sports. And there's, they're recognizing we could very easily put all of our eggs in the basket of winning this softball championship. But we know that if we lose and all of our eggs are in that basket, then our hope is crushed. And I think their, their, their coach clearly must be a Christian. I don't know the whole story. Maybe some of you do. But the coach has kind of developed this mentality on the team, and many of these players have come to faith in Christ through that, where they recognize my hope is not in the game of softball. My hope is not in my performance. My hope is not in winning this championship or in anything else that's about me. My hope is in Jesus, and that frees us to simply play the game. We're going to do our best. We hope we win, but if we lose, it's okay. We've got Jesus. You, you may face opportunities where you get to say things like, my hope is not in X, Y, or Z. My hope is in Jesus. I mean, there's lots of examples. Uh, opportunities for faithfulness in the workplace. And perhaps many of you may face situations where you are under pressure to conform to standards that go against the biblical call to faithfulness. And, and you've got to figure out, how do I faithfully serve Jesus and do my job uh, without denying Jesus? How do I testify that Jesus is my ultimate hope, that my ultimate allegiance is to him, and, and that I can't compromise on that for the sake of a job, uh, some workplace requirements? We can use our words and those opportunities to point to Jesus as our ultimate hope, to show the world that there's an anchor for our souls that goes beyond this world. When your hope is in Jesus, not in yourself, not in your accomplishments, not in your family, not in your political party, not in your circumstances, in all of these situations, you can cheerfully, as Paul did, just direct the spotlight to Jesus. I'm innocent of these charges, but the real reason I'm here is because I have hope in God who has testified to that hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so we see Paul here, as he testifies to his hope, directing their attention to Christ and away from himself. We see this most pointedly, perhaps, in this final scene from this passage, where Paul presents a penetrating plea to Felix. Felix and his wife, Drusilla, um, 
tell the, the Jewish, or Felix tells the Jewish accusers here, you know, I'll, I'll decide this case later when the tribune comes down from Jerusalem. He sends Paul back into custody with some liberty there and protection. Felix is married to Drusilla, whose father was Agrippa I, Herod Agrippa I. She's Jewish. She is Felix's third wife. He stole her from her husband. And so Felix is not a good guy. Uh, Felix is not living in a righteous way. And yet he's interested in hearing what Paul says. He has some knowledge of the way. Uh, he has some knowledge of Jesus. We don't know exactly what that is. Uh, but he at least knows about the things that have happened. But Felix is not known for his piety. He's not known for his character. As we said, he is drawn to power, given to cruelty and injustice. And yet he wants to hear from Paul. And he calls Paul before him to converse with him. But notice what happens. Verse 24, Luke tells us that Paul spoke to Felix and Drusilla about faith in Christ Jesus. And then verse 25, he reasoned with them about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. And what's Felix's response to this? He's alarmed. <laughs> he, he gets the point of what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, you lack righteousness in yourself. You need it in Jesus. Uh, God calls you to self-control. You're not exhibiting it. There's a coming judgment for sins, and you're under that judgment unless you repent and put faith in Jesus Christ. And Felix says, no, 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 no. I don't want to hear this. Go away. I'll bring you back at an opportune time. And he does, but Luke tells us that Felix simply hopes for money from Paul. I guess he thinks Paul brought an offering for Jerusalem. Uh, maybe Paul has some money and he'll bribe him. Paul continued to live and speak before Felix with integrity and urgency despite this two-year delay under Felix's rule. And yet the sad irony is that in spite of Paul's faithful testimony and proclamation, Paul, uh, Felix rather put off responding to Paul's plea for repentance and faith. He wanted to wait for the opportune time, and that delay was his downfall. How many of you have heard or are hearing the message of grace in Jesus Christ, the message of righteousness through faith in him, the warning of coming judgment for those who are outside of Jesus? How many of you are putting off a response, wondering, thinking that maybe there's another way, thinking that you can stand before God on your own two feet, on the basis of your own righteousness, perhaps thinking that your morality what you've done, your self-effort will be enough before God. I remember talking to a friend of mine in high school, sharing with her what Christ had done in my life at that time, urging her to put her faith in Jesus. And she said to me, I'll do it later. I really just want to have some fun first. Later, I'll settle down when life is more uh, important. But right now, I want to do what I want to do. And later, I'll get right with God. Felix was doing much the same hoping for money, hoping to curry favor with men, not wanting to admit his own faults and sins, putting off the most important decision in order to seek his own desires. It reminds me of those groups of people during hurricane season who ignore evacuation orders on the coast and instead throw parties in beachfront condos, thinking that somehow they will be immune from the massive storm that is coming their way and will in inevitably smash the condominium that they're partying in. They ignore the warnings and the pleas to find rest, refuge from the storm. Paul was saying to Felix, 
And the Bible says to us, God says to us, that there's a fierce storm of God's righteous judgment that is coming and that we ought not doubt it. And that the reason we know his judgment is coming is because it has already come once, which both heightens the warning and also offers to us refuge. We know that God's judgment for sin will come because he's already shown us his judgment for sin at the cross of Jesus. At the cross of his beloved son, the father poured out, if you will, the first installment of justice for sin. But the good news is that he poured it out on his son in our place. The scripture tells us that God made his own son, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. At the cross, you see the guarantee of God's judgment and you see the call for refuge, to find refuge through Jesus because he took the judgment in our place. The full strength of God's righteous judgment was poured out like a fierce storm on Jesus, the righteous one, for all who would believe. But unlike every other person who has died, Jesus rose. He was the only one who could withstand and absorb the judgment for sin that we all deserve and remain alive, come back to life afterwards. His resurrection is the undeniable proof that there's hope, that there's forgiveness of sins, that the judgment need not fall on you and on me because Christ has taken it in our place and calls us to put our trust in him to turn from sin and to receive the gift of salvation through faith in him. Some of you may be today feeling the weight of your own sin, wrestling with the conflict of sin in your own heart, or even simply looking at the crooked brokenness of this world and the massive failure to find hope here and now. And you might be looking for some answer to that problem. And perhaps that search is producing more frustration, more confusion than peace. And the call of scripture is that if you're looking for the answer, if you're looking for hope anywhere outside of Jesus, you won't find it. But not to delay, nor to despair. Jesus completely saves. And in him we have full forgiveness. And in him we have a hope that sustains us no matter what we face. As we come to the Lord's table, uh, let us be reminded of the hope that we have in Jesus. He will sustain us. He will enable us to face every trial with the cheerful defense of the hope that we have in him.